ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So in the last sessions, in the previous sessions, we went through the opening ahadith from this book of a Shaykh, Abdurrahman Asadi, Rahimahullahu Ta'ala. In those opening ahadith, we had covered the hadith regarding intention. إِنَّمَا الْعَمَالُ بِالنِّيَّاتِ That indeed all of your actions are judged by your intentions. We also covered the second narration which was regarding staying away from innovation, making sure that all of your worship is done in accordance to the sunnah. So we covered the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, مَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِي أَمْرِنَا هَذَا مَا لَيْسَ مِنْهُ فَهُوَ رَدٍ Whomsoever brings about anything into this religion of ours which is not from it, then it will be rejected. And then after that, we covered the third hadith last time, the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ said, الدين النصيحة, الدين النصيحة, الدين النصيحة, that this religion is نصيحة, meaning something pure and sincere. And then the companions, they asked the Prophet ﷺ, to whom is this sincerity? To whom is this nasiha? And the Prophet ﷺ had explained to them that it is initially to your Creator, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you ensure all of your lives, everything you do, all of your worship, all of your obedience, your statements and your actions, they are all purely and sincerely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then also, with regards to the Qur'an, the book of Allah, that you read it and you recite it and you learn it and memorize it and act upon it, all of that being from the nasiha. Similarly to the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, obeying him in his commandments, staying away from the prohibitions, believing in all of the information that he taught us, and only worshipping Allah in the manner that he taught us, prescribed to us in the sunnah. And then also, the nasiha to the rulers, and also to the Muslims as a whole. That was the third narration. So today, we move on to the fourth narration. The fourth hadith is the hadith of Abu Hurairah. Abu Hurairah, as you know, one of the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and he narrated more hadith 
than any other companion. So Abu Huraira, he mentions in this narration that the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, or that Abu Huraira, he mentioned himself, أَتَى أَعْرَابِيٌّ النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ Abu Huraira mentions that on one occasion, a Bedouin came to the Prophet sallallahu A Bedouin, meaning those people who used to live on the outside of the city, not living in Medina itself, but living on the outsides, in the deserts, in the other more remote areas, those Bedouins, one of them came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, دُلَّنِي عَلَى عَمَلٍ إِذَا عَمِلْتُهُ دَخَلْتُ الْجَنَّةِ The Bedouin said to the Prophet ﷺ, Show me, an action that if I was to do it, I would enter paradise. Show me what is the action that I can do which will enter me into paradise. Dullani ala amalin ida amiltuhu dakhaltul jannah. Show me an action that I can do which will enter me into paradise. قال, so the Prophet wasallam said to him, Bear in mind the importance of the question. The question this man is asking the Prophet wasallam. He is asking him, what can I do? What action that I can enter paradise because of it? So these actions that the Prophet ﷺ is going to mention, they are going to be absolutely critical actions. Actions that will enable, will enable an individual to enter paradise. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Firstly, تَعْبُدُ اللَّهِ وَلَا تُشْرِكُ بِهِ شَيْئًا this is the first thing that the Prophet ﷺ told this man. The question of the man was basically, what can I do to enter paradise? What do I need to do? What actions to enter paradise? The first thing the Prophet ﷺ told him to do, because there are several things, the first thing he told him to do, indicating the most important thing, he said, تَعْبُدُ اللَّهِ وَلَا تُشْرِكُ بِهِ شَيْئًا Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon tawheed and do not commit any shirk. Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon tawheed and do not commit any shirk. Just like Allah told us in the Qur'an, وَاعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا Allah said to us in the Qur'an, Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon tawheed, and do not commit any shirk. Shirk meaning that you take some action of worship, and you direct it at other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
you take the act of worship of making dua, and you perform it to others besides Allah. Like the dead in their graves, going and making dua to them help us. Like even the graves of the messengers, how people go to the grave of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and they face it and they want to make dua to him, O Messenger, help us. Dua is an act of worship. If you do that act for someone other than Allah, then you are committing shirk. Shirk is to take some action of worship, some ibadah, and to do it, to direct it to other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet ﷺ told the man, in response to his question, what can I do to enter paradise? The first thing, implement and practice tawheed, and stay away from shirk. You see narrations like this, they highlight to us our manhaj. That's why the scholars, they say, one of the best books in manhaj, is Kitab tawheed The scholars, they say, one of the best books in manhaj is Kitab tawheed Why? Because in the ayat of the Qur'an, in the ahadith of the sunnah, they tell us what our methodology as Ahlus sunnah is. This narration now tells us what the priority in our ibadah, in our worship is. And that shows to you the method you are supposed to be treading upon in your practice of Islam. The method is what? That your basis for entering paradise will be implementation of tawheed and warning against shirk. The basis will not be like the Hizb tahrir and the Muhajirun, their basis of saying the rulers are kuffar, and we need to go do this and do that, and make takfir of everyone. That is not the basis. Not like the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, let's gather and unite everybody, no matter what your aqidah, no matter what your belief. That is not the basis. The jama'at al-tabligh, Let's go and knock on everybody's doors and bring them to the masjid without even knowing what aqidah is, even if they are committing shirk. That is not the basis. We see that our manhaj, our methodology as Ahlus Sunnah is upon the guidance of the Prophet ﷺ. And the guidance here, when a Bedouin came to ask him, tell me, O Messenger of Allah, what shall I do? How do I enter paradise? Where do I direct my life? How do I behave? How do I obey Allah? What do I do to traverse the path to paradise? Then the first thing before anything else, Ta'budullah wa la tushriku bihi shay'ah. Worship Allah upon Tawheed and do not commit any shirk. This is the basis. That's why when the Prophet ﷺ used to send the companions to go to different places, and those companions were sent as teachers to go to different places and teach Islam, 
to those tribes and those people of that area. The Prophet ﷺ would tell these companions, make sure when you go, that the basis of the da'wah is tawheed first. Abandonment of shirk. Then after that comes the prayer and everything else. Like in the famous hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal, when the Prophet ﷺ said to Mu'adh, إِنَّكَ تَأْتِي قَوْمًا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ You will come across the people of the book over there. He was sending him. The Prophet ﷺ was gonna send him to Yemen. At that time, there used to be Christians and Jews living in Yemen. The Prophet ﷺ said to him, you will come across the people of the book over there. So make sure فَلْيَكُنْ أَوَّلَ مَا تَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَيْهِ شَهَادَةَ أَلَّا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Make sure the first thing you call them to is the shahada that none has the right to be worshipped in truth except Allah. Because on the day of judgment, that will be the criteria. The people of Tawheed and the people of Shirk. So then the Prophet ﷺ said to Mu'adh, tell them about Tawheed first. فَإِنْ قَبِلُوا ذَلِكَ مِنْكَ أو كَمَا قَالْ If they accept that from you, the Prophet ﷺ said to him, if they accept that, فَأَخْبِرْهُمْ أو ثُمَّ أَخْبِرْهُمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ افْتَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ خَمْسَ صَلَوَاتٍ فِي كُلِّ يَوْمٍ وَلَيْلَةٍ Then after that, if they accept Tawheed, then tell them about the five prayers they have to pray every day. Then tell them about the five prayers that Allah has obligated upon them in every day and night. After they accept Tawheed. Because if a person does not accept Tawheed in the first place, even if you pray five prayers every day all your life, it will not be accepted. Even if you pray, even if you fast, if you do not accept Tawheed, you still believe it's okay to go make dua to these dead people in the graves that they tell you are awliya. You still think it's okay to go and prostrate to these great awliya they tell you. To go and throw money at them, prostrate to them, kiss them. You believe those things are okay. Then this is a calamity in your aqidah. So the first thing the Prophet ﷺ told this Bedouin, to enter paradise, the actions you need to do, the first one is to make sure you are worshipping Allah upon Tawheed and abandoning all types of shirk. Because that is the very basis of your existence. When a person asks, how they ask now in their academic circles, what is the purpose of our existence on earth? What is the objective and the purpose behind the existence of humans on this earth, then Allah told us in the Qur'an, Allah told us exactly why we are here, told us exactly what our purpose is. Allah said, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I did not create the jinn or the humans except for them to worship me. إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ أَيْ يُوَحِّدُونَ 
that Allah created us for the purpose of us worshipping Him upon Tawheed. Tawheed meaning singling out Allah, one and unique with all of our worship with the Rububiyya, Uluhiyya, Asma'u Sifat. Singling out Allah in all of that, that is our purpose in creation, to worship Allah alone. Allah said in the Qur'an, الَّذِي خَلَقَ الْمَوْتَ وَالْحَيَاةَ لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ أَيُّكُمْ أَحْسَنُ عَمَلًا Allah created this death and life to test you which of you will be the best in action. Which of you will be the best in your actions? And who will be the best in their actions? Those who are worshipping Allah upon Tawheed, upon the Sunnah, not upon innovations, not upon deviations, not upon your own emotions, but worshipping Allah upon the revelation of what is in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, upon the revelation of what Allah revealed to us, that is the basis of your worship. And we see from that revelation that the basis of it all is Tawheed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When the revelation began, another great proof that the way of Salafiyyah is correct. Ahlul Sunnah are upon the correct methodology in teaching Tawheed as the basis. When the revelation began, to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Think about this. At the age of 40, when the revelation began with Iqra, in those initial 13 years that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam remained in Mecca after the revelation. Revelation at the age of 40, then he remained in Mecca for another 13 years before making the hijrah and living in Medina for another 10 before his death. Those first 13 years when the Qur'an was coming down, because the Qur'an didn't all come in one go, it came in sections. One section, then another section, then another part, another ayah. Bit by bit it kept coming down, until the full Qur'an had been revealed. The bits of the Qur'an that were revealed in the first 13 years, Whilst the Prophet ﷺ was in Mecca. And you can tell which bits they are when you look in the tafsir of Ibn Kathir or something. At every beginning of the surah, it tells you if this surah is Madani or if it is Makki. If this surah was revealed in Mecca when the Prophet was still in Mecca or if this particular surah was revealed after the Prophet had gone to Medina. If you were to examine the surahs of the Qur'an that were revealed in Mecca, the Makki surahs, you would notice that the overwhelming subject matter of all of those surahs that were revealed in Mecca is purely Tawheed and Shirk. For the first 10, 13 years, the da'wah was purely to rectify and to cleanse the hearts of the people. Because prior to Islam coming, what was their state? Prior to the revelation, what was their state? Apart from some of the remnants, 
that were left over from the religion of Ibrahim alayhi salam, then all they had was shirk, idols, polytheism, darkness upon darkness. So the methodology as the scholars they mention was, At-Takhliya, Qabla Tahliya, to cleanse first, and then to enter the new items in. Like they say, when you want to drink some water, and the cup is dirty, what are you going to do first? Clean that cup out, then pour the water in. The first 10 or 13 years was all about cleaning the hearts of the people out from the shirk that they used to be upon. Then it was a case of entering all of the tawheed into it. So for the first decade, 10 years at least, there or thereabouts, it was all about worship Allah alone upon tawheed. Abandon all of these idols and these false deities. The Prophet ﷺ used to say to them, قُولُوا لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ تُفْلِحُوا Say, لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ There is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah. تُفْلِحُوا And you'll be successful. But the mushrikeen didn't want to accept that. They wanted to continue upon the worship of their idols and their deities. And they said in reply, أَجَعَلَ الْآلِهَةَ إِلَهًا وَاحِدًا They said, what? He wants to make all of our gods into just one? Abandon all of these idols and deities and only worship Allah? That's strange. They said, no. We want all of these deities. So the initial message was exactly this basis. Worship Allah upon Tawheed. Rectify yourselves that your dependence, your trust, your reliance, your dua is purely in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Abandon all forms of shirk. Abandon the idols, the deities, the stars, the sun, the moon, the trees, the deceased, the awliya, they claim, the prophets, the angels. None of that. Rather worship purely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even the prayer. Even the prayer. Five times a day obligatory. It was only revealed a decade after the prophethood began. A decade, ten years or more, thereabouts. After the prophethood began, that's when the prayer was established as a ruling like that. So what was going on in the first 10 years? If the prayer wasn't even established as a ruling like that yet, the first 10 years was purely focused on, Worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, and do not commit any shirk with Him. Because Allah said in the Quran, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk with Him. But He forgives all other sins lesser than that to whom He wills. Shirk is the one sin that will not be forgiven on that day. Shirk is the one sin that is punishable. 
whether it is major shirk or minor, major shirk, the person will remain in the hellfire forever. If it is a form of the minor shirk, then he will be punished as the scholars say, definitely. But his punishment will not be forever. Eventually he will be exited into paradise since it was minor forms of shirk that do not exit you from the fold of Islam. That's why the scholars, they say, the greatest sin is shirk, the major shirk. If you break it down even further, some of the scholars, they say, the greatest sin is major shirk. Exit you from the fold of Islam. Then below that, what's next? Then minor shirk. Then after that, The major sins. So they say major shirk, minor shirk, then the kabair. Meaning they want to say by that, that minor shirk activities, actions that are considered as minor shirk, are greater than just the major sins. They are deeper than major sins. One of the reasons, they say an act which is minor shirk, it is greater than a kabirah, Greater than one of the major sins, because an act of minor shirk necessitates that you will be punished for it. Even if it is not continuous, even if it is not forever, you will definitively be punished for it. Then exitative in the end to paradise. But the kabair, most of the scholars as they say, it is not the case that you will definitively be punished for them. A person may, by the mercy of Allah, be forgiven and enter into paradise. تحت المشيئة. So the affair here, the Prophet ﷺ highlighted very clearly, the first thing you need to know and focus on to entry for paradise is this issue of tawheed. A person may think that's easy, but the reality is, it's not how these people on the streets and these so-called scholars and YouTube scholars will tell you, don't prostrate to any idols and you're on Tawheed, no problem. They say it's a five-minute job, what's the problem? Just don't prostrate to idols, don't prostrate to the graves, don't make dua to them, done. That's what they say. The reality is, the affair is much greater than that. You look at the book of a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, 60 chapters thereabouts, 60 chapters thereabouts, a book he entitled the book of Tawheed, 60 chapters or thereabouts of different types of shirk, different types of things that would constitute shirk from a person, open shirk, hidden and concealed shirk, shirk in your intentions, even to the extent, shirk in your statements and phrases. There are certain things you may say, even though you do not intend any bad meaning, but the way that you phrase it, can potentially indicate a bad meaning. And so the scholars, they prohibit it. Like in the narration where it is mentioned, the Prophet ﷺ said to the companions when they were being oppressed by some of the munafiqeen, they said, قُومُوا بِنَا نَسْتَغِيثُوا بِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ 
Let's go and ask the messenger to give us aid and help and assistance against these munafiqeen. When the Prophet ﷺ heard that, he said, إِنَّهُ لَا يُسْتَغَاثُ بِي You do not make istighatha with me. You don't seek aid and assistance with me in that phrasing, in that manner. Istighatha, seeking aid and assistance and to be exited from difficulty. That type of phrasing, that type of terminology, it is for Allah alone. Some of the scholars even used to say, when a person says, remember to bring those books tomorrow, I really need them, I'm depending on you. Make sure you bring that paperwork tomorrow, I really need it, otherwise I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm depending on you, I'm relying on you to bring it. Some of the people of knowledge used to say, this phrase is something to be avoided. You should avoid this type of terminology. I'm depending on you. I'm relying on you. Even though you intend nothing by it. But the phrase is indicative of a potential meaning, which is a corrupt meaning. Because in the origin, dependence and reliance is an act of worship for Allah. So if you're using this phrase for a human, in this manner it can indicate or it can bring about a meaning that is not appropriate, even if nothing is intended. So some of the scholars used to say, don't use these phrases, I'm depending on you, I'm relying on you. You're not. You're depending and relying on Allah. And then you are hoping this person will do what it needs to be done. So the point being here, when the Bedouin came to the Prophet ﷺ, and he said to him, tell me what I can do to enter paradise, the first thing the Prophet told him, ﷺ, was worship Allah upon Tawheed, and abandon all forms of shirk. The second thing he told him, وَتُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ الْمَكْتُوبَةِ Establish the prescribed prayers. Establish the prescribed prayers. وَتُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ الْمَكْتُوبَةِ Make sure that you guard over those prescribed and obligatory prayers. Five times prescribed upon an individual in every day and night. Just like in that hadith of Mu'adh, أَنَّ اللَّهَ افْتَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ Allah has obligated upon them five prayers every day and night. In the Quran it mentions what about these five prayers? Inna salata. Inna salata kanat. That this prayer is prescribed upon the believers in fixed times. And everybody knows the famous hadith of when the prayer was initially ordered by Allah. On that night of Al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, the night when the Prophet ﷺ was taken up to the heavens. Not in a dream, physically with his body, everything. He was taken up to the heavens. And that's what makes it a miracle. As for the people who say it was something spiritual, that the Prophet's body remained where he was in his bed, 
but spiritually his soul was taken, then that would not be a miracle. The miracle was that he physically moved such vast distances and returned in one night. And that's why when the mushrikeen, they went to Abu Bakr the day after the night of Al-Isra Al-Mi'raj, or after the event, they said to him, your prophet Muhammad, he claims to have gone from Mecca to Palestine to the heavens, everything in all one night. He went all these places and came back in one night. That's what he claims. Abu Bakr said, what do you mean? Even things which are far greater than that, I believe him. If that's what he says, then that is what happened. There are things even greater than that, he tells us we believe him. He tells us the revelation comes down to him from the heavens, from Allah. And we accept and have yaqeen in that. So this story you're telling me, it's nothing. If he says that, of course, happened. So on that night of Al-Isra Al-Mi'raj, when the Prophet ﷺ was taken up initially, originally, it was prescribed as 50 prayers every day. Five zero. Initially 50 prayers every day. So the Prophet ﷺ accepted that. And he was returning. And as he was returning, he came across, as he was coming back through the heavens, he came across Musa salam who asked him, what did your Lord prescribe upon you? So Muhammad ﷺ told him, 50 prayers to be prayed every day and every night. Musa said to him, I have experienced my people before you. I have already gone by. My ummah, I experienced them and their level and what they are capable of, etc. And I'm telling you, your ummah will not be able to handle 50 prayers every day. Go back and ask Allah for reduction. So the Prophet ﷺ went back and asked for reduction. So it was reduced to 40. As the Prophet came back again, Musa ﷺ asked him, what did your Lord command you with? He said, 40 prayers every day. The Musa ﷺ said to him, I have experienced my people before you. I have experience of my ummah. And I am telling you, your ummah just the same, you will not be able to handle 40 prayers, your ummah. Go back and ask for less. So then he went back and it became 30. Musa alayhi salam again said, your ummah will not be able to do it. I've got experience from my ummah. Your ummah won't. 30 went down to 20, went down to 10. Still Musa alayhi salam said to him, it is going to be too much for your ummah. It went down to 5. Musa alayhi salam said, how much, what now? Prophet Muhammad said five prayers. Musa again said, it will be difficult upon your ummah. But then the Prophet Muhammad said, I have gone back to my Lord repetitively, several occasions asking for reduction to the extent that now I am shy to keep going back to ask for more reduction. So I am happy with five prayers every day and night. That is what we will be established upon. And so that was the ruling that was established. Five prayers every day and night with the reward of 50 prayers. 
five prayers every day with the reward, still the original reward of 50 prayers. These are the five obligatory prayers. Obligatory. Meaning it is not permissible to miss them whatsoever. For the one who fulfills those conditions, has the the mind, the conscience in place, has his ability, etc., then it is upon him to pray. Even if a person, in whatever circumstance, a person can't make wudu. For example, he is in a situation, he's been locked up by somebody, some enemy, thrown into a jail cell. There is no water, there is no, nothing to make tayammum, he can't do anything. He is in a situation, whatever the situation may be, he cannot make wudu in any form. No problem. If the time of the prayer is exiting, pray without wudu then. Necessity. A person, for example, is paralyzed in hospital, he's been in an accident. Can't get up to go make wudu anything. Time for the prayer is about to leave. Pray then. Pray as you are. Even without wudu. Necessity. The same person, paralyzed in hospital, he can't even actually get up to pray. No problem. Sit down and pray. He's paralyzed so bad, he can't even sit on a chair, lying on his bed. Can't move his body at all. No problem. Pray lying down on your bed. Move your eyes up and down. Down for the rukur. Down a little bit more for the sujood. Pray with your eyes going up and down if you cannot move your body up and down. The prayer does not drop. The prayer does not drop from an individual. This is the obligation that on the day of judgment, you will be asked about as the first thing. The first thing that a servant is asked about. The first thing that a servant is asked about on the day of judgment is the prayer, the salah. Did you pray your five prayers every day or not? Five every single day. And that is why there has been a long discussion between the scholars of Islam for a century, for a thousand years or more. From the time of the Salaf thereabouts or more. 1400 years they've been discussing and having this debate, the scholars amongst themselves, that a person who doesn't bother to pray out of laziness, can he still be considered as a Muslim or shall we consider him as a kafir now? A person who doesn't pray out of laziness. You know, some of the scholars they say, that a person who abandons the prayer out of laziness can't be bothered. He knows he's supposed to pray, but doesn't bother, is a kafir. They say when he dies, don't do janazah, don't bury him with the Muslims. Go and dump him in the non-Muslim graveyards. The one who abandons the prayer out of laziness, knowing that this is the commandment of Allah upon him. You've been created to worship Allah. Five prayers every day is your objective in your worship. For the prayers, a person cannot even establish that, then what are you doing in your lives? What do you want to do with your lives? You cannot worship Allah in the most basic sense. Cannot even establish the five prayers every day in their times. Then what will be your accountability when your books are taken out on that day? What will be your worship and what will be written for you on that day? 
A man spent his whole life without prayer. The only prayer he ever prayed was the Jum'ah and maybe Eid. Nothing else, maybe the odd one here or there in the week, missed all of the others. Then that will be in your records. The angels, they write down everything. وَإِنَّ عَلَيْكُمْ لَحَافِظِينَ كِرَامًا كَاتِبِينَ Indeed, we have upon you the noble guardians, writing and recording everything you do. So be aware, you will be accountable. You will be accountable upon what you do. So here the Prophet ﷺ mentioned to this Bedouin, you want to enter paradise, tawheed first, abandon shirk. Number two, establish your prayer five times every day. Thirdly, وَتُؤَدِّ الزَّكَاةَ الْمَفْرُوضَةِ Pay the obligatory zakat. The one who has the amount of money which now necessitates zakat to be taken, then give that zakat once a year. If your money has reached that level whereby zakat is now obligatory upon it, that is the third. The fourth, وَتَسُومُ Ramadan. And also fast the month of Ramadan, the obligatory fasting, obligation upon the Muslims to fast. This is also mentioned, and fasting is an act of worship beloved to Allah. Fasting wasn't just for this ummah, even the previous ummahs, the nation of Ibrahim, of Musa, etc., the previous people, they used to have this obligation of fasting too. Fasting was something throughout history. The previous nations as well. We know that because Allah mentioned that in the Quran. Fasting has been prescribed upon you just as it was prescribed upon those who came before you. So fasting is an act of worship beloved to Allah. Prescribed upon us and those who came before us. So that is the fourth thing he said. قال, then the Bedouin said, after hearing these four things, nafsi By the one whom my soul is in his hand. I will not increase upon this anything. Nor will I decrease from it anything. So when that man then turned around and began to leave, قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم, the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said, من سره أن ينظر إلى رجل من أهل الجنة فلينظر إلى هذا. Whoever is pleased is happy to look at a man from the people of paradise, then look at him. A man from the people of paradise, look at him, observe him. The one who establishes the basics, the pillars of Islam, establishes the tawheed, establishes the prayer, the zakat, the fasting. Hajj is not mentioned in this narration, but the scholars they say, when these types of narrations, they mention the core, the remainder follow. So Hajj we know, once obligation in your lifetimes, and even Umrah, as many of the scholars hold the opinion, one obligation in your lifetimes, and that can be done when you make your trip for Hajj. A person does the tamattu' then you have performed your Umrah, and you have performed your Hajj. Obligation upon a person. 
So the one who guards over the pillars of Islam, guards over these pillars, then that is the person who is acting in a manner deserving of paradise. That doesn't mean that these pillars are the whole of Islam. As the scholars say, the purpose of this is that these pillars are the basics and then everything else goes around these pillars too. Everything else goes around these pillars too, obviously. Like a person may say, in this hadith it doesn't mention anything about reading the Qur'an or memorizing it. But of course that comes into it. Because all of this tawheed, shirk, prayer, zakat, hajj, fasting, all of these rulings and all of these practices and actions, where are you going to learn them from? How are you going to do them? From where? Where are you going to learn them? The Qur'an, the sunnah. So don't misunderstand thinking this means that those other parts of the religion are no longer important. They are the mukammilat as the scholars say. When you see narrations like this explaining the bare fundamentals to you, that is the bare basics and the pillars, then everything else comes onto that, like to fill in all of Islam and the perfection of Islam. So this is what the Prophet ﷺ said to him, hadith which is in Al-Bukhari and Muslim. Al-Shaykh Abd al-Rahman al-Sa'di rahimahullah says, قَدْ وَرَدَتْ أَحَادِيثُ كَثِيرًا فِي هَذَا الْأَصْلِ الْكَبِيرِ الَّذِي دَلَّ عَلَيْهِ الْحَدِيثِ There are many narrations in the sunnah which indicate to us this great principle that this hadith speaks about وَمَدْلُولُهَا كُلُّهَا مُتَّفَقٌ أَوْ مُتَقَارِبٌ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ مَنْ أَدَّى مَا فَرَضَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ بِحَسَبِ الْفُرُودِ الْمُشْتَرِكَةِ وَالْفُرُودَ الْمُخْتَصَّةِ بِالْأَسْبَابِ الَّتِي مِنْ وَجَبَتْ فِيهِ وَجَبَتْ عَلَيْهِ فَمَنْ أَدَّى الْفَرَائِضِ وَاجْتَنَبَ الْمُحَرَّمَاتِ اسْتَحَقَّ دُخُولَ الْجَنَّةِ وَالنَّجَاةَ مِنَ النَّارِ وَمَنْ اتَّصَفَ بِهَذَا الْوَصْفِ فَقَدْ اسْتَحَقَّ اسْمَ الْإِسْلَامِ وَالْإِيمَانِ وَصَارَ مِنَ الْمُتَّقِينَ الْمُفْلِحِينَ وَمِمَّنْ سَرَكَ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ What this hadith indicates to us is very similar to many other narrations indicating the obligations upon you. And the one who fulfills these obligations and stays away from the prohibitions, then he is deserving of paradise and deserving of being saved from the hellfire. So whoever has these descriptions in him, fulfills these obligations, stays away from the prohibitions, then that is the type of person who deserves to be entitled with the name of Islam. He's practicing Islam with the name of Iman. He's practicing Iman. And he is the one who will be from the pious, from the muflihin, from the successful, from the victorious, and from the ones who are truly traversing upon the straight and upright path.
<coughs> that brings us to the end of that particular hadith. Insha'Allah Ta'ala in the next session we'll begin with hadith number 5 which is the hadith of Sufyan ibn Abdullah al-Thaqafi where he asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam a question just like this Bedouin did. And in this hadith we'll do next time Sufyan he asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa messenger Tell me something regarding Islam and my practice of Islam, etc. That I don't ever ask anybody else. Something specific, knowledge from you. Tell me about my practice of Islam. So what did the Messenger of Allah tell him? How to practice your Islam, what to do, how to make sure you're being good, etc. What was the advice from the final Messenger, Muhammad wasallam? That is what we'll go through. In the next session, insha'Allah ta'ala, in two weeks' time. So we'll conclude upon that for tonight. There's a question here that says, what's your advice regarding a new Muslim and the prayer? What should he be doing? A new Muslim who has accepted Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has enlightened him to accept and to understand the truth. Then this is a great blessing upon him from Allah, a great blessing upon him from his Creator. So that individual now needs to strive and section by section, bit by bit, start learning the fundamentals of the religion regarding Tawheed, regarding shirk and abandoning it and staying away from it, regarding the prayer, start learning it bit by bit, learning the wudu, learning all of these basics that are required by obligation, then a person begins to learn bit by bit, section by section, the Muslims teach him, aid him, help him in that affair so that he can learn. And slowly, inshallah, that person learns and he becomes acquainted with the rulings and how to perform them slowly but surely, inshallah ta'ala. Is there any other questions? Otherwise, we'll conclude there. The statement saying good luck and bad luck, it is not an appropriate statement at all. It is not a correct statement to make to say to somebody good luck. Because the affair is not about luck. The affair is the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Putting your trust and dependence in Allah, taking the asbab, the, 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 the reasons or the, the mannerisms or the means and the methods. You do all of that and you put your trust in Allah. It's not a case of luck or bad luck. Bad luck in particular, luck and bad luck. It comes under the chapters that are often referred to as tira. The omens and the bad luck in the olden times, they used to get up in the morning and throw a stone in the tree. The birds are obviously sitting in the tree. So they will throw a stone in the tree. If the birds flew out on the right side that way, they would say, today's going to be a good luck day. Go out and do some business and everything, you'll make profit today. But when they threw a stone and the birds happened just coincidentally to fly out from the left side, they would say, today's going to be a bad luck day. Don't bother with your business today. We'll sell tomorrow and stuff like that. Haram. Haram to engage in these types of beliefs of luck and bad luck and good luck and all of these other suspicions about the black cat bringing bad luck and the breaking the mirror in 13 years. All of this good luck, bad luck, it is not correct. So do not engage in that and do not have beliefs in that. And do not make those statements. 
Rather you say to a person, Tawakkal Allah. Put your trust in Allah. Not good luck. Say to a person, put your trust in Allah, make dua to Allah and go and do what you need to do. Do what? He, he prayed Jumma with, with the two guys. He didn't pray with, with the Jama'ah. They didn't pray in the Jama'ah which was established in the hospital for the workers for Jumma'ah. Yeah. They came afterwards and made another Jama'ah. He was there for the second Rakaam. Why did he do it though? What was his purpose? What was his reason? He didn't tell me but I asked him if he prayed Jumma'ah. Why did he pray this? And he said, I've got some mufti because he said I've got very less time half an hour so I need to make a very short khutbah in a hospital situation there is no fixed jama'ah it is possible that could occur in a hospital situation there are certain medics their break is at uh, 1 to one thirty. other medics their break is at one thirty to 2 so some of them could come and make a jama'ah between 1 and one thirty. The other bunch, they only get the break at one thirty to 2. They come and make their jama'ah afterwards. That's possible. Because it's not a jama'ah, it's not a masjid, it's not a congregation. Whoever has the, the shifts and the breaks, if it's not possible to do it all together, especially in a hospital environment, there are uh, there is some leeway for, for medics and things with surgeries and other things. But if he is there present, when the first jama'ah is going on, then that isn't suitable for him to make a second jama'ah. If he's present there, the jama'ah is going on, you should pray. If he has other reasons, his beliefs, and he says, you people are Wahhabi and whatever else, that kind of thing, that's another story. That's his issue and that's his misguidance, you need to explain to him. But as for somebody making some other excuse about not praying in the jama'ah and it's happening, then it's unsuitable. But if it was a case of genuinely not being able to attend, and it's not a fixed congregation, it's a hospital, medics come, go, breaks different times, all sorts, it's possible some medics may come and do theirs first, and other workers and staff only get a break afterwards, they have to only come afterwards. That's possible in, a, in that kind of situation, in that context. I don't believe taxi driving is a type of occupation that allows you to combine your prayers. The scholars give leeway for certain things like a brain surgeon or a heart surgeon. You're doing an operation, it's going to last from midday till 6 p.m. In the winter months, that means your dhuhr, asr, etc. Prayer is all in there. You can't just leave the person, it's impossible. Those types of things scholars give leeway. But jobs like this, especially taxiing where there's absolute flexibility, stop your job for one second on the side of the road and pray. It takes two minutes, you'll be stuck in the traffic lights that long anyway. Stop for five minutes, ten minutes, pray anyway. If it really came down to it, it's a real struggle because of certain jobs or whatever other professions. One of the things you can do is the jam' suri as they say. Meaning that you pray dhuhr and asr combined, but not really combined. Meaning, like in winter, dhuhr time finishes at maybe what? 1.30 p.m. Starts at 12.30 p.m. or something finishes 1.30 p.m. 
Asr begins 1.30 p.m., finishes maybe 3 o'clock or something, 3.30. So now you could pray dhuhr, for example, at, uh, at 1.20. Just when the time is about to end and Asr is about to start. Pray your dhuhr. So you've prayed dhuhr in its time. As soon as you finish praying dhuhr, a couple of minutes later, the time for Asr begins. So straight away you can pray your Asr. So it's like you've prayed your dhuhr and asr all in the space of about 15 minutes. It's like you've combined, but you haven't really. Because dhuhr, you've still prayed it in its time, but at the end of its time. And asr in its time, but at the beginning of its time. So they've ended up back to back. So it's like you've combined, you've prayed them both in one go, but it's not actually a combination because they are in their times. If you were really pushed, that is permissible. It's permissible because the prayers are still in their times. If you were pushed, but it's not an excuse to just combine and say, Dhuhr, I'm gonna miss it all together. Four o'clock or something, we'll pray Dhuhr and Asr together. You can't just combine like that. If you are in the masjid, and you happen to see someone praying Salah, and when they're going to sujood, their awrah shows, after the Salah, is it obligatory for them to repeat the Salah, or are they ignorant of the ruling? The awrah becoming apparent in the prayer, it's not as simple as that. It depends how much of the awrah became apparent, from which section of the awrah became apparent, and the rulings are different for each. Where the awrah became apparent, how much of it became apparent, those kinds of things are taken into consideration before you can make a ruling upon what that person has to do then. So it depends. That is not permissible. People, they say, okay, now the winter months, Dhuhr 1 o'clock, Asr 2.30, Maghrib 4 o'clock. We're on shift all day, we don't finish till 5 p.m. So we come back at 5 p.m. and we pray all of our prayers combined. Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, all in one go at 5.30. That isn't correct. It's not correct to do that. You have to strive to fix things up. And they can be fixed up. With the laws of this country, a break every four hours, a lunch break, this break, that break. You have more breaks than you work. So you can fix things up to make sure you can try to do things. Get your break in a way, if you're really struggling, in a way where you fix your break at the end of Dhuhr time, beginning of Asr time, so you can pray them both in their times. For example, ask for your afternoon break just at that time where Dhuhr is about to finish and Asr is going to start. So in your break you get to pray both of those prayers done in their times. Work it out like that, strive. Don't just say, I'll combine everything in the later on when I get home, and you take your tea break at 3 o'clock or something instead. Work out your breaks, your lunch break, your, your afternoon break, especially in the winter months, your lunch break will be 12 to 1, 1 to 2. There's your dhuhr already. Dhuhr and asr probably most likely. The way it is, get your lunch break at a time where dhuhr is going to be there, it's going to end, asr time is going to start, there's your both prayers done. There's not a big issue if a person strives to fix it. But you can't just say, difficulty, I'm on shift, I'm going to pray them all combined at the end. No, the sunnahs in any situation, it's not an obligation. So in that situation, if a person was really struggling with their shift, with their work, they can barely just get enough time to pray that Dhuhr and Asr, they can't pray any of the sunnah and any of the nawafil, then so be it. But the obligation is the minimum. You must pray that. If you really cannot do any more because of the work the way it is, absolutely you can't. 
then that's not something you'll be accountable upon. Inshallah, maybe you'll even be in the narration that it will still be written for you. Because that is something you normally always do. But now due to the absolute pressure of the work and the timings, they simply do not give you enough time to pray those nawafil and the sunan. So all you can do is the obligatory. Inshallah, maybe even you'll still be within the reward of having them. But a person strives to finish at least the obligatory as a must. That isn't even an option. The aura in the prayer as a bare minimum is what? We've done this. Naval to the knee is a bare minimum for the acceptability of the prayer. That doesn't mean that that's how you should dress for the prayer. That is simply talking about the minimum acceptability. A person then should dress, as it's mentioned in the narrations, with something over his shoulders, meaning an upper garment as well, a lower garment dressed in the proper manner. But a minimum level, absolute, if you had nothing, like in the times of the Salaf, there are narrations where they had nothing. They had one cloth, one piece of cloth that they would tie around their navel, going down to their knee to cover that private area. That's all they had. So they would pray in that. That's the bare minimum for acceptability. But, of course, a person takes his beauty in the prayer. You are standing before your Lord. So you don't come with trousers that are going to be tight. You go into ruku' and your back becomes uncovered. Or you go down to sujood and all of the shape of your, the, the bottom becomes apparent. This isn't suitable. You're standing praying before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The aura is supposed to be something which covers you in terms of not being able to see through it. It's not see-through clothes. And also something wide and spacious. So the outline of your body can't be seen. People think aura, wear some tight jeans, I'm covering my aura. You're not really. Because with something very tight, I can see the shape. You can see the shape of that person's bottom, etc. So you haven't really covered the aura. Covering is to make it wide so the shape cannot be seen. And the actual skin cannot be seen. So a person needs to honor himself in the prayer. Knowing that Allah is before him, seeing him, watching him. For the woman, she must cover all of her body. All of her body in the prayer. And the only exception to that the scholars have mentioned is the hands and the face. Unless she was in an area where there are going to be non-mahram men, then for that reason, not for the prayer reason, she has to then cover her face too. But for the prayer, if she was in her home for example, or in an area separate where no men are going to be, then all of her body except her hands and her face. And the correct opinion from most of the scholars, including her feet. All of the body must be covered, including the feet, the only hands, and the face can be uncovered. Is the aura of the daughter haram on the father? The intimate aura? Yes, so the shape or the... No, no. The, the intimate aura, then of course, even the daughter to her father, of course, she must be covered. But otherwise, in terms of the general indoor clothing, then that is permissible. How a woman would dress to her maharim, she's allowed to show what she would not show to other people. She's allowed to show, basically the scholars, they say the areas of the wudu, even amongst your own, uh, apart from your husband, everybody else, you wouldn't dress in a manner that exposes a lot more than the areas of the wudu. So your arms can be exposed. It could be a short garment where your arms are exposed. It could be a garment where your neck is exposed or your ears, your hair, all of this is exposed. 
But you wouldn't wear some type of garment even amongst just women that exposes more than the areas of wudu. As many of the scholars have said, Shaykh Fawzan, Shaykh Bin Bash, Shaykh Al When women are amongst themselves, they have this misconception. They have this misconception that they can wear whatever they want. Tight garments, low cut garments, skirts, etc. No. That was never the way of the female companions. And that is never what the scholars have said. A woman amongst other women or amongst her other maharim, apart from the husband, between the woman and the husband, it's open. But the other maharim, then she should be covered and only expose the areas of the wudu. The rest, okay. She could be wearing, for example, a t-shirt. Allowable within her maharim, possibly, because that covers all of the areas, loose t-shirt covering all the areas, but it's exposing the arms and the head and the neck, no problem, amongst the maharim. But it should not be tight garments that expose the shapes of the body. It shouldn't be tight garments that expose the shape of the body, either upper garments or lower garments. Shouldn't be tight that they expose the shape of the body. And it shouldn't be, in fact the scholars have said it very clearly, it should not uh, explain the shape of the bosoms of the woman. That should not be shaped. The garment should not be tight so that the shape of that is apparent to other women. That is not permissible. It's a great misconception amongst the sisters that they think it's permissible to wear anything when you're amongst other sisters. From the honor, from the modesty and the honor of a sister is that she is still well covered. The only thing should be exposed are the wudu body part areas. Arms, feet, hair, neck, face. Those types of things, no problem amongst the other women in the maharim. But not tight clothes that show the shape of your body, no. Scholars say no to that. Not skirts showing all of the legs, etc. No, the scholars say. So that is something to be aware of. The importance of prayer, the Prophet ﷺ said, for our children, when they are seven, then start, start telling them, start telling them to pray, etc. Command them to pray, muruhum bisalah, and when they get to ten, then you give them a little clip as they say, to tell them you must pray. So it's upon the parents to bring up their children with this concept of prayer being something as a primary action in life. Just like you pick them up every day, you take them to the shop, you take them here, you take them there, you take them to school, they eat, they sit down, they go to bed, all these routines they have. In that they need to understand prayer is a part of their life. So from a young age, Bringing them to the mosque is of importance. Bring the children to the masajid. The parents bring them to the prayers. When they are at an age, they understand and they won't mess around. So they come with the wudu and they practice and they pray and they see. Bring them to the gatherings of knowledge as the salaf they used to do. You must educate them practically. When you pray, tell them to pray. From the age of six, seven, eight, they understand. So you need to be doing that. The parents who are ignorant and negligent of that, then your kids grow up to 14, 15, 20. Now you want to make them go to the mosque and pray. How are they going to listen to you now? So from that young age, bring them to the masajid when they are understanding and they won't mess around. 
teach them from that young age, show them the prayer, make them learn the prayer, and make sure they understand this is a key aspect of our lives as Muslims. The scholars, they say it is not permissible to pray with the pictures. Even in these places where you get the multi-faith rooms, and then on one side there'll be the picture of what they claim to be Mary and Jesus and these types of things, pictures and portraits on the wall. The scholars, they say it is not suitable to pray in those places where these pictures are up. So find an alternative room. Find somewhere else where there are no pictures to pray. No, there is always an alternative because the Prophet ﷺ said, This whole earth has been made pure for me. You can't find any room, go out into the car park and pray. I find that I constantly have to remind my children about prayer even though they have been praying since seven. That's no problem. You have to constantly keep reminding them and so be it. Even children are children nevertheless. Eight, nine, ten. They are still young. And all of their friends out there, maybe they're not praying. They're out playing on the streets and they want to play football with them too. So for the children, no problem. If you have to keep reminding them, then be as reminding them all the time. Remind them for the prayer, and as long as they are praying, and they are understanding the purpose and the importance of it, then inshallah ta'ala, that's something they'll carry on with them throughout their lives. When they get to an age of understanding themselves, they will carry on praying, and they will have that fear to drop that prayer and not to pray it. So it's not an issue if you have to keep reminding them. Make dua to Allah, that Allah makes them firm, that Allah makes them understand, and gives them that grounding in this affair of prayer, and they carry on upon it. The seven-year-old, if he makes the wudu, has to have wudu. He can stand in the line and pray, no problem. For that young age, perhaps it's okay. But once it gets to around about seven, eight, nine, really the girl should be on the girl side. But a young child can stand in the, in the row. But once they get slightly older, it would be preferable that a girls go and stand in the rows of the girls, with the rows of the women. So that they understand that too. At the age of seven, eight now, they're getting old. So ideally at that age, it would be preferable they go stand with the women, stand with the sisters. Young children, four or five perhaps is different. But the elder ones, for the girls, they should stand with the females. The boys, they must make wudu if you're going to put them in the row. Without the wudu, it is considered a break in the row. I think we should stop there now. Inshallah ta'ala, the prayer time is here. We'll carry on in two weeks time. Inshallah. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين